From the red and black, this is the front page. Today is Thursday, April 22nd, and in this week's episode, we'll discuss some stories in this month's April paper issue. But first, we just launched our new app, The Red and Black Now, which is available on the App Store and on Google Play. Download today and stay in the know. For this month's paper issue, the theme was G-Day, which was last Saturday, April 17th, and sustainability in honor of Earth Day, which is today. We will hear about when G-Day was held at Clark Central High School, how some fuzzy pollinators are being threatened this spring, and transportation struggles in Athens' food desert. And starting us off is sports contributor Katherine Lewis to share her story about when the 1996 Olympics pushed G-Day to Clark Central High School. Thanks so much for joining, Katherine. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So the pandemic wasn't the first time G-Day has been altered before. So talk with me a little bit about how the game was different 25 years ago. Yeah, so 25 years ago, the 1996 Olympics were coming to Atlanta. So they used a lot of locations around Metro Atlanta and Sanford Stadium, Georgia's football field was used for Olympic soccer. So in preparation for the soccer games, Georgia, uh, Georgia's football team couldn't use the stadium in a lot of ways that they usually do in the spring. So players and coaches that I talked to at the time said that there was a buzz around Athens and people were so excited to see it come but this meant that their annual spring scrimmage game had to be relocated. So I talked a little bit in my article about it, but Kirby Smart has absolutely transformed G-Day into a huge production that Georgia's never seen before. So I would have to say that in 1996, the Olympics were definitely more of the excitement around Athens. So in order for the Olympics to come in and have competition be held in Sanford Stadium, what changes had to be made? Yeah, so I would say the biggest thing at the time was the removal of the famous hedges. So this turned out to be a really big deal for fans, for the staff of Georgia football. It was it was a huge deal. And head coach at the time, Jim Donnan, actually told me that on the day he was hired as the head coach in 1996, he asked the athletic director to go down to the stadium and check out the field and he had no idea what was going on when he went down and saw that there weren't hedges on the field. He's really confused about that. So after the Olympics happened, they put them in right away. Everybody wanted to see the hedges come right back. And they actually cultivated clippings of the hedges in a new location in hopes that they were able to kind of replant the same hedges. But during the time of the Olympics, players, coaches, they weren't allowed into the stadium. So that was definitely a little bit bizarre for a spring season. Some of the people you talked to were involved in that G-Day game 25 years ago. So what did these college athletes and coaches think at the time about playing on a high school field again? Yeah, everyone that I talked to seemed to really find the positives out of the game. Um, Coach Donnan, it was his first year, as I said, and he told me that he had the opportunity to meet so many people at Clark Central where that game was played in 96 that he wouldn't have met otherwise if it were at Sanford. Brandon Tolbert was a player on the team at the time. He was a junior in 1996. He said he felt like he was going back in time, playing in front of a smaller crowd, a more high school-like aspect, and so much was new with the Georgia football team at the time with a new head coach, so there were so many changes, and the idea that I got was it was just one more little change, and there was still a decent crowd size at Clark Central of 10,000 people, so it was nothing at all compared to what they're used to. 
Great. Thanks so much for coming on, Catherine. Yeah, thank you for having me. Next, we have senior editor Anna Thomas to explain how our fuzziest pollinators are threatened. Anna, thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. To start us off, explain to me what the biggest threat to the native bee population is and why they are declining in numbers. So the biggest threat to our native bee pollination is invasive plant species. So Jennifer Berry, who is the research professional and lab manager for the UGA honeybee program, was explaining to me that native bees develop with specific native plants. So they're very picky about what they pollinate. Like they might only go back to one plant species or even one specific plant throughout their life. So when invasive plants like privet, for example, comes in and takes over a bunch of territory or a bunch of a single habitat and basically takes over the habitat that our native species are in to the point where they can't grow anymore. It affects our native pollinators because then they are sort of stuck without anything to pollinate or without a source of food. So that sort of affects their population. Have honeybees been affected differently? And if so, how? So basically the biggest threat to honeybees is something called the Varroa destructor, which is a species from Asia. And the honeybees that we use in America are European honeybees. So our honeybees actually aren't native to America. They're non-native, but they're also not invasive, which like the Varroa destructor is. So like the difference between a non-native species and an invasive species is that non-native species were brought to a habitat that they had not previously inhabited but they can't grow their population super fast organically. Whereas invasive species can organically grow so fast and populate so fast that they actually end up affecting the native populations of the habitat that they're in to a point where those native populations are threatened or can like even go extinct. So yeah, the Varroa destructor is the biggest threat to the honeybee population. They like carry diseases for the honeybees that like can honestly can make them go a little crazy or they can like Dayton, who is a former president of the Northeast Georgia Beekeepers Association, described that like the Varroa destructors can even like eat the insides of the bees and then spread viruses and make them go a little crazy. So yeah, that's the biggest threat to the honeybees population. How can people in the UGA and Athens communities help protect the bee population? I asked Jennifer Berry that same question and she was describing how people can buy local honey or support the local beekeeping industry, even become backyard beekeepers themselves. Basically, if you're a homeowner or even if you live in an apartment, you can plant native vegetation and Instead of grass lawns, you could plant clover in your lawn, which is better for the native bee populations. And it stays green year round and doesn't require a lot of maintenance. Like you don't have to mow it like you do grass. And then you could also plant trees, which provide food for different birds and insects and other pollinators. Well, Anna, thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Lastly, we have contributor Natalie Simoneau to share her story on transportation challenges in Athens' food desert. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. First, can you start off by explaining to me what a food desert is? Of course. Food deserts are any low-income area that has a substantial number of its population that has low access to a supermarket or grocery store, which makes having healthy food difficult to obtain. And why should this matter to people in Athens and at UGA? Athens and the university specifically are deeply entwined with limited food availability. The nearest grocery store to campus 
ours over a mile's walk away. And downtown actually is classified as a food desert. So in 2018, over 16% of Athens' population faced food insecurity, meaning that they didn't have enough food. And COVID has only really complicated this issue. For example, the buses only run one direction, which makes the amount of time for people that need to use these buses to get to grocery stores just longer. Does UGA offer any resources for students to combat individual food insecurities? Yeah, there are actually a couple resources on campus that we have. There's a food pantry inside the Tate Center for students. And every Wednesday, there's a farmer's market where local produce is sold from 11 to 3 outside of the MLC. There's also like a few community resources, such as little free pantries and many businesses that will double SNAP dollars that the students are able to use that. One of your sources was Michael Gleason, a senior lecturer at UGA's Warnell School of Forestry and Natural Resources. So what were some of the implications on the public health that she explained to you? Yeah, so Michael, she explained how when students or when people in general don't really have access to healthy food, it creates creates additional stressors that can lead to more health problems. So like families that are having difficulties figuring out how to feed their children are just faced with additional stressors when trying to figure out like transportation issues or like actually providing nutritious food to everyone in their family. Great. Thanks so much for coming on today, Natalie. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And that was The Front Page. The Front Page is a production of the Red and Black Publishing Company. This episode was co-produced by Katherine Lewis, Anna Thomas, Natalie Simino, and myself, Sarah Detweiler. The front page is sponsored by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to grab your paper and download our new app, and we hope you tune in next time.